This episode is sponsored by Greater Vancouver Tenant and Property Management LTD. Looking to rent out your home or property? Greater Vancouver Tenant and Property Management LTD is here to help. With nearly 500 Google reviews, their property management team loves working first time and small landlords providing best in class rental and management services right here in Vancouver. Condos, townhouses, houses, multiplexes, the team uses technology and industry best practices to avoid the usual headaches. To get your first two months of management free, text or WhatsApp the word BOOMER to 604-256-6930. That's BOOMER to 604-256-6930. That's a special offer for Looney Hour listeners. I personally use them myself. I highly recommend check them out. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this information discussed today is not intended to be or construed as investment advice. Please consult a professional advisor before putting a loony in any of these financial markets. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back. People have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to the Looney Hour, episode 95. As always, joined by the three amigos. We got uh, Keith Dicker here, Ice Cap Asset Management, Rich, Rich Diaz, uh, the Tom Brady of Macro. Welcome back to the show, gentlemen. Uh, Rich, you you sobered up now, buddy? Uh, just barely. <laughs> I think I had like some kind of kidney damage. No, I had a great time, though. I just want to thank everybody for coming out. It was really, really cool to meet um, so many people. A lot more first gens than I was expecting. So first gens is what I was told that the first generation immigrants called themselves. I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, a lot of young people as well. Um, I got a couple of hugs, no kisses. Keith, uh, how did how did you have a did you have a good time? Have you recovered? Well, if everyone's ref, yeah, if everyone's reference, we're talking about the live event in Vancouver. Oh, yeah. Sorry. And then the uh, the not so live event, which was even a livelier event in Calgary. And um, what what I had, I had a, you know, a brilliant time. I, I love both of those places and everyone is just so nice and kind and engaging. And I hope I was able to say hello to everyone there. If, if I didn't get to say hello directly, you know, we'll, we'll blame it on uh, Steve and, and Rich. But uh, that, that was a fun time. I really enjoyed it. And I'm really looking forward to going to Vancouver again. And by the way, the, the Calgary event, no offense to Vancouver, but I think we need to do the Calgary event again. And because uh, that I think people will want to hint, hint, you want to travel over for the Calgary event. That was fun. That was a good time. Rich was yeah. on fire, everyone. Rich was the MVP oh, of no. the Calgary event by a, by a long spot. Uh -oh. How about you, Steve? What did you uh yeah, no, it was it? just a really great turnout. I think the Vancouver event was like the venue is awesome. You know, just you know, full packed house there. Uh, you know, the drinks were flowing. The audience was super engaged. Uh, it was a great time. Then obviously Calgary, we had like you know perfect weather. Uh, you know, Keith Keith bought way too much booze, way too much pizza. Uh, we had leftovers at the end of the night. Uh, you know, the tickets were like cheap. We were we were losing money on that one. I think it was like twenty bucks for a ticket to come for unlimited booze, unlimited pizza. And in the night, this guy just walks out because we're like, hey, man, we got excess. This guy walks out with a 15-pack of Buds and a full large pizza, you know, worth the uh, worth the price of admission right there. So, um, yeah, no, it was a great time. But, you know, 
uh, moving, shifting gears here to this week's episode, we've got a very special guest, uh, a good friend of the boomers here. Um, Brent Johnson. Uh, some of you guys will know him as the milkshake man. Uh, but we're going to chat with Brent here shortly about, you know, macro markets, uh, what he's seeing, uh, you know, a guy, I think that's, you know, widely followed on social media there. And, um, so we're excited to have him on this week's show. Okay, everyone. Normally, Steve does the introduction for all the guests because, you know, Steve is the loony hour and Rich and I just, just hang out all the time. Um, <laughs> but, we, you know, we're actually thrilled here today. Uh, you know, we have a what usually our guests, a lot of them are Canadian based and focused. But uh, we also know there are some, some really great minds out there that are following the world from a global macro perspective. And we talk quite a bit how maybe a trigger event for something good or bad in Canada will come from outside outside of Canada. So I just thought today it would be really good to have, uh, he's a very dear friend of mine, is Brent Johnson. And uh, Brent's background, he's very active on uh, different podcasts and social media platforms. Brent developed a or created or coined a uh, an investment thesis a few years ago. It's called the Dollar Milkshake Theory. And uh, we can talk a little, little bit about that as well. Recently, if people are you're not aware of it, uh, Brent started his own podcast, and that is called Milkshakes, Markets, and Madness. I think I'll have that right. Uh, so we also encourage everyone to give that a, a follow and you get to hear a bit more about what Brent is thinking about. And uh, I think people may or may not know, but Brent and I, we know each other maybe a little bit too well. And uh, but we we work together a little bit. Maybe Brent can share a little bit about that. And I like the joke that, uh, you know, he probably yells at me once a week on average. That's the on average, right. maybe, maybe not. That's about right. But yeah. Anyway, everyone, uh, here's Brent. So Brent, uh, oh, how are you feeling these days? Brent, have you been invited you to pizza night yet? No, you know, he always posts these pictures. He's, but he, and he, you know, he tells me what a great cook he is, but he's never, ever like cooked me anything or sent me anything to eat or nothing. Okay. I don't feel too guilty of bad then. He's, yeah. uh, I've never been invited either. It's just every, every week there's pizzas flying on t- Twitter yeah. and I've never, never been invited. So there you go. I've been invited and it was amazing. So there you go. <laughs> I think you have to be here, you know, to get to get in on the on the kitchen party. Uh, so how about then we we start, Brent? Um, I mean, I, I think this week there was one headline event, or maybe it happened late last week. I, the days are a bit messed up here. Uh, but then there was another event. So the big headline event got all the attention in the media. And in the investment world, you know, we more or less shrugged it off. It's not that big. But then there was a significantly more important event that took place late last week and has carried over into this week. So, you know, obviously, uh, you know, we're talking about the credit rating downgrade for the U.S. and then uh, the, what the Bank of Japan have been doing. So why don't we just, you know, sort of uh, cue things up with that and then we'll, you know, we'll sort of float around the conversation on that way. Sure, sure. Well, it, it is kind of interesting because you would think that, you know, the U.S. debt being downgraded would be kind of a nightmare scenario. And I think for, for many other countries, it would be. Uh, but what's kind of interesting is that, uh, you know, the, the, the U.S. debt is what the whole system is based on. So if the, if, if the U.S. debt goes down, there's not a situation where the U.S. debt goes down and the other debts do not, right? Uh, because it would be like pulling the rug out from everybody and everybody just all of a sudden levitating and it not being a problem. And so, you know, 
while it's not a great thing for, for the U.S. debt to be downgraded, it's not necessarily a, a horrible thing either. And, you know, because, because it's, it, it, the U.S. has the ability to withstand stuff like that because they, sent that, they sit at the center of the monetary universe. And, and I know sometimes when I say things like this, people will say, oh, there goes Brent again. He's, you know, thinks that they're the exceptional Americans and they can never do anything wrong or they're better than everybody else. And it, it's really not that at all. It's really just the design of the system. You know, when the, when you have a system where everything trades relative to everything else and the U.S., even though they have all these problems, are in better shape than or, or have the ability to, to meet their problems in an easier way or a better way than their competitors, the U.S. is still going to be okay. So it's interesting to see that, you know, the U.S. debt gets downgraded, treasury yields, uh, you know, go up and, and the, the prices come down, but everybody's still buying the debt. You know, the U.S. is not going to have uh, an issue um, selling securities. And the same thing happened, what's interesting, the same thing happened about 10 years ago, 12 years ago. And when the U.S. debt got downgraded, treasuries actually rallied. So, you know, it's, you just kind of got to take a step back and kind of understand how the whole system is designed before automatically saying that this is a disaster scenario for the United States. Maybe, maybe one thing that people may not be aware of. Um, so every, every bank and insurance company around the world, you, you have what's called um, regulatory capital and in, in reserves, and they have this risk score that they'll attach to it. But, but basically, the whole, as Brent mentioned, the whole system is structured and designed so that bank capital gets funneled into the U.S. treasury market. So if, for example, someone decided that, hey, you don't have to hold treasuries anymore, and say you, you're any kind of a bank or insurance company in the world, even pension funds. So, so Brent, where, which other market could these hundreds of billions of dollars flow into? if the U.S. treasury market was taken offline? Well, I guess theoretically you could say it could go into gold. Um, that would be a place it could go. It could go to some other sovereigns that, that, that now seem to be seen as superior uh, to the United States. But again, or you know, maybe it goes into land, maybe it goes into equities. Bitcoin. But again, yeah, or Bitcoin, maybe it goes into Bitcoin. But again, you know, based on the system as it's designed right now, there, there really isn't a way for the U.S. to go bankrupt or, or go offline and not, you know, no longer have a demand for its treasuries, but there still simultaneously be treasuries or demand for, for other sovereigns. Uh, because if, if the U.S., let, let's say the U.S. bond prices were to just absolutely collapse and nobody wanted them and yields go to 15, 20, 30 percent. Well, all these other yields are kind of priced off of off the treasury as well. So, so those yields are going to be spiking as well. So it's it, it's kind of fun sometimes to kind of think about these theoretical things, but the the, the likelihood of these happening. And again, I, I'm not going to say that that's impossible. Um, and so you, I guess you theoretically should be prepared for something like that. But but the probability of something like that happening is so incredibly low. Um, that to, to see where you know the U.S. Treasury would fail, but other treasuries would rally at the same time is so. Wait, are you saying the Canadian market would be influenced by the Treasury market? Maybe just a little bit. Maybe just just a little bit because this conversation yeah. you know, up here in Canada, you know, you know, everybody in the world we see the markets through our own eyes and, and lens. 
And we, you know, we do that for so many things. We take our own, you know, morals, ethics, and values, and we portray that onto the rest of the world. And that's, that's the way we expect everyone to behave. Um, but we talk about it quite a bit, the entire banking system in the Western world anyway, it, it is dependent upon the yield curve on rates and credit spreads. So if we do go down this road where the treasury market does get hurt for whatever reason, um, you know, the Canadian market will get hurt, will get hit as well. And, you know, obviously, Steve, you're going to see it in your business, spreads are going to blow out and stuff like that. Uh, why don't we next? Well, the, the other uh, thing, too, the, the, the other thing I should point out, like, is if, it, if this happens, right? If yields go to, I don't know, let's say the yields go to 30% and treasury prices fall by 50%, all of the banks, all of the insurance companies, all of the pension funds, all of the, you know, shadow banks around the world who are holding treasuries on their balance sheets are now bankrupt. So credit is just going to collapse in that scenario because their balance sheets are just completely upside down. So again, whether or not you, you think this can happen or not, or whether you think this would be a good thing or not for, for this to happen, you know, because the U.S. finally gets what's coming to it. This is not a situation where the U.S. goes up in smoke and the rest of the world's throwing a picnic. It, it just, it's just not set up that way. And maybe it should be, but it's just not. And I think it's really important to understand that. And that's why well, we I'm refer to the U.S. as the 11th province of, of our country sometimes. <laughs> You know, we you know we, we we refer to Canada as America's attic. <laughs> we let you we 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 let you guys live there, but we all know who owns it. Well, it is always kind of funny, big. right? Because like I don't know, I always hear it that you know people in the U.S. they're always like, oh, you know, our our country's going to shit, and you know, but you know the you know we're heading to tr trillion dollars now in, in interest payments at the government level but then you know you come to canada and everyone goes oh man i if, as a canadian i want to get the hell out of here and get to the us uh you know you worry about the value of the canadian dollar so i feel like there's some of that like home country bias um that uh you know fogs people's views i have a, I have a question actually that sort of dovetails off of steve's point and i'm curious is this a de facto downgrade or indictment of global government debt? Yeah, that, that's a that's a very good question. Um, and, and again, it's it's hard it's hard to it's hard to see where you know you're going to downgrade the U.S. and it's going to be you know this huge horrible thing for the U.S. but that it doesn't end up affecting and downgrading other countries as well. Um, and you know, when this happened 12 years ago, S and the Standard and Poor's downgraded the United States. You know, a couple months later, their president was fired you know, or he stepped down due to personal reasons or whatever it was, right? And I think they got a fine. So, you know, at the end of the day, the, the, the government kind of controls the rating agencies or, or they, they can dramatically influence the rating agencies. Um, and so, but, but I think what, what you're getting at here though, is that, and I think one of the things that Keith and I have talked about for a couple of years now is that there is this sovereign debt crisis looming, right? But it's not just a U.S. debt crisis looming. Uh, it's not just a Bank of Japan or Japanese debt crisis looming. It's not just a Turkish debt crisis looming. It's really a global sovereign debt crisis looming because of rates were held so low for so long, now that they're starting to rise. And because over the last 30 or 40 years, markets have become so globalized and so enmeshed with, with one another, it's become increasingly hard to have a regional crisis that doesn't spread 
and have contagion for the rest of the world, especially when it's especially when it's at the sovereign level. Um, and so, you know, we believe that there will be a sovereign crisis. We believe this is kind of the precursor to a you know margin call on global sovereign debt, or however you want to, however you want to refer to that. Um, and so, but but you know, the fact that this happened 12 years ago, and and now we're here, and the debts around the world are so much bigger than they were 12 years ago. It's also a reminder that just because this happens doesn't mean everything is going to collapse tomorrow, right? The whole inevitable versus imminent argument, uh, I, I think, is apropos. Now, we think that we're a lot closer to it than a lot of other people think we are, but it doesn't mean necessarily mean it needs to show up tomorrow. So I'm kind of curious. I have you know, what your like longer term view is because I think I'm in the same sort of view and agreement as you that uh, you know this clear this is a global sovereign debt issue or impending crisis. Are you of the view that like how does this get resolved? Let's say you know five years, ten years, twelve years down the road, do you feel like it, do central banks just come on in and end up monetizing all the debt? Yeah, yeah. How do you how do you view this playing out? I, I think that's increasingly likely. What what ultimately I think will happen, and and I think I don't necessarily think there's going to be one event and that's going to be over. It, something will happen. You know they'll get it under control. Something else will happen. They'll get it, and so I think well, they'll kind of be this stair step event. But I think in the next you know three, four, five years, um, we will get this crisis. And when when this crisis happens, I think um, I think the U.S. dollar is going to rise dramatically versus all other currencies. Um, again, not necessarily because the U.S. is in good shape, but just because they're in in two things. They're in better shape than a lot of the competitors, and then the design of the system as it currently is, kind of forces liquidity into the dollar. And so what I think happens is the dollar gets so high that it just leads to all kinds of problems around the world. And then the, the global central banks get together and they come up with a you know this, this famed global reset where they either write debt off or they monetize it. And in some form or another, then after that's done, then they, then they, you know, they devalue the dollar from there because the way the system is set up right now, it is not designed to, to withstand a rapidly appreciating dollar. And so this is one of the reasons that, that, that Keith and I have talked a lot when, when, you, when the idea that the central bank losing control, and a lot of times we'll equate that with the dollar losing value, but, but it's, the, it's the exact opposite. You know, The dollar kind of falling or staying lower as, as the Fed monetizes the debt or you know, provides liquidity, that's the system being perpetuated. What wrecks the system is when the dollar rises too fast and the central bankers can't get it under control. That's what happened in 2008. That's what happened in 2019. That's what happened in 2020. And that's what happened again, started to happen again last fall. Uh, I think Q3 of last year was a very good precursor or a very good analog for how I think ultimately this, this will play out. And that is last year you saw the US interest rates rising because the Fed was raising rates. The Fed raising rates made the dollar uh, appreciate versus foreign currencies. As those foreign currency, the problem is the rest of the world owes debt in US dollars and needs US dollars to operate on the global stage. So the rising dollar caused all these other countries' uh, debt servicing costs and operating costs rise. And it put the whole world into crisis. Um, the US was having problems with inflation, but the rest of the world was in crisis. You know, in, in, in 
August and September of last year, China was struggling to combat their deflating real estate market. Uh, the European Central Bank finally raised rates for the first time in 10 years, but at the same time, they had to set up a facility to buy sovereign yields like, like Italy because those yields were starting to rise too quickly. Uh, at the same time, the Bank of England had to bail out their treasury market because one of their pension funds was one of their pension funds was going bankrupt or about to blow up, and that was then going to affect, um, you know, the ability for British uh, treasury auctions to function properly. So they had to go in and kind of bail out that market. And at, all at the same time, the Bank of Japan had to go in and not only bail out, not bail out, that's probably the wrong way. They had to go, they had to do their yield curve control to keep their interest rates and their treasury market under control. But at the same time, they had to bail out their currency market because the yen was just collapsing. Um, and so I think that's kind of how, I think that's a good way to show how I think it's ultimately gonna play out. The US was having a lot of problems last year, but the rest of the world had them in even bigger amounts and the US markets held up better than those markets did. Sort of reminds me of that, that movie, There Will Be Blood. Remember the scene when you had the, uh... Yeah, that's you know. right. I mean, that, 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 that's kind of where I got the whole milkshake theory uh, analogy from is, you know, I was trying to kind of figure out how this was all going to play out. You know, this is an interesting story to you all. I, I don't know if anybody's ever heard me say this before. I think I've told you, Keith, but it's, it was around that time. It was, you know, I kind of started talking about this in 2018 and around 2019. I kind of started developing the theory more and talking about it more. But I think that's about the time that I first came across one of your quarterly reports. And I don't remember the name of the report, but I, I distinctly, I can't believe I'm actually going to say this, but I distinctly remember reading this report and I got done and I read a lot of reports and I listened to a lot of people and I, and I, I read this report and I put it down and I was actually mad that I didn't write it. <laughs> it was so well written. Um, and, and it was so, it felt like, like, like you had, so that, that I'm giving you credit here in case, in case you didn't, uh, I know that I, I just like hearing, yeah. I'm going to let you continue <laughs> you go on with it. I remember the name yeah, of the report. I, I, I think it was called uh, return of the King. I, th I think that's what it was. Uh, yeah. Be, King dollar be, was the theme. With yeah. It. Yeah. And so, and I had felt like, you know, and I didn't know you at the time and I felt like, you know, you had like opened up my head and like taken out all my thoughts and written them down in a, in a better organized way than I had. Actually, I think this was more like 2018 rather than 2019. Now that I, now that I think about it, but um, um, and, and so then that kind of you know led me kind of thinking more about this. And then you know I, I, around the same time, I had seen this movie years ago, but then I had seen it again. And you know that scene where he was drinking the milkshake, I was like, well, that's a that's a perfect way to explain it because as we get into this crisis, you know, just based on the design of the system and based on the way capital flows move and based on the, 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 the regulatory aspects of all these markets around the world, you know, what little liquidity there is, is going to get funneled into um, the thing that sits at the base of the system. And that's the U.S. dollar. And, and, and that's really kind of how the whole milkshake theory started. Brent, can I ask a question? Oh, yeah, go sorry, ahead, Rich. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. So just on that. So one way that the U.S. provides liquidity is by running basically twin deficits, if I'm not mistaken. So twin deficits is basically you have a current account balance, which is negative, and you have a budget balance or government budget balance, which is negative, and the two of them together are twin deficits. There's um, a renewed call in America by certain political operators to that are sort of budget hawks, let's say, that want to run 
balanced budgets. Um, you just described it in a world in which we need American dollar liquidity. And there's, you know, some political class that are insisting on sort of taking that away. Number one, is that sensible? Number two, is that realistic? And number three, always have I screwed up the question or is the generous sort of understand? No, no, no. I mean? It's, it, it, it's what you're kind of referring to here is Triffin's dilemma. And Triffin's dilemma, for those who aren't familiar with it, it was coined back in, I think, the 60s. And it basically said, whenever an individual country's currency is also used as the global reserve currency, you will eventually come into a situation where the needs of the domestic market come into conflict with the needs of the global market. And because for several years and several decades now, the U.S. has been willing to run these double budget deficits, we have not come into this conflict. There has not been the conflict the, uh, you know, described in Triffin's dilemma. But really, over the last call it five or six years, you know, it, it really kind of picked up speed when Trump was president, you know, the whole make America great again, um, you know, bring manufacturing back to the United States, bring jobs back to the United States. And then now with the kind of the deglobalization trend, you know, where, you know, for national security reasons, you don't necessarily want to outsource everything to another country, you know, it's kind of picked up speed. And so, so now you are starting to have the national interests of the United States, who's been supplying the currency to the rest of the world starting to come into conflict with the rest of the world. And then I think that's played out very well last year. Again, the needs of the domestic market last year were higher rates. It needed to bring up higher rates in order to kind of slow the inflationary effects. The problem is that because the rest of the world owes US dollars and uses US dollars, when the US raises rates, they were also raising rates on the rest of the world which put downward pressure on their, on it put deflationary pressure in dollar terms on the rest of the world. But simultaneously, the rest of the world was also dealing with inflation from COVID and their currency started to fall dramatically against the US dollar. So they were having inflationary effects being compounded by the US dollar getting stronger in their local currency terms, simultaneously getting deflationary effects from the dollar getting stronger in importing uh, costs and in um, debt servicing costs. So the rest of the, so that is a very, that is what happens when you try to get away from these twin deficits, right? And so I'm not saying that it can't happen. Um, it, you know, a lot of people will say, well, the, the U.S. could never return to manufacturing. Well, of course they could, but there would be a hell of a lot of pain, right? And, and, I think that's the point is we're, we're not going to have a situ the, the only situation where things go okay and we don't have an incredible amount of volatility is if everything just goes back the way it was. We continue to expand debt. The, the U.S. continues to run twin deficits and everybody goes back to globalization. I, th I think it's pretty well, I don't know, laid out now that it's, everything is not going to go back exactly the way it was. And so any kind of a any kind of a transition away from what it was to, to what it's going to ultimately be, there is not a way to do that that is non-volatile uh, and probably not a way to do it that's non-violent. Um, I hope I'm wrong, but you know, any kind of a transition from that old system to a new system, whether it's a new currency, whether it's the U.S. now running you know, only a budget deficit or no longer running a trade deficit, that's going to have profound impacts uh, not just on markets, but geopolitics and all kinds of stuff, social issues. So it's a, it's a really big mess <laughs> is, is the best way to say it. 
I mean, the, the irony, of course, you know, there, there's a lot of clamoring, as you said, Rich, for the Americans to reduce their budget deficit. But by doing that, it reduces the supply of treasuries being issued, which then would only strengthen the dollar, which would then accelerate a market crisis of, of some sort of, of an event. So, I mean, you know, I, we, we've talked about quite a bit before. Like, I believe that we are experiencing this you know slow shift to a new kind of a financial system coming up and you know as, as brent said it doesn't have to mean it's like it's a do you hear that rich was that loud enough no no how is that better still no. i try to snap my fingers every now and then i can never you, get the you fingers. can you never but learn the fonts i like the fonts but i can't get the finger thing but the point is that like it, we don't have to dramatically you know shut everything down over the weekend and is it and something new or overnight because markets in the private sector were really good at, at adapting to change but if we get this sudden rapid change uh in any market the way the world is set up today, it is going to attract a lot of money into the dollar market. Uh, that's for sure. Yeah. Steve, I think you had a question lined up as well, Steve, before Rich was about to ask one. No, I was just kind of curious, like, you know, keeping all of this in mind, like what your what your views were in, let's say, the near near to medium term, which is, you know, your US 10 years back towards levels last seen in, you know, 2007. Obviously, we know that the debt that's compounded uh, in the years since then, uh, inflation still proving a bit trickier. The Fed's still hawkish. How are you viewing like markets in, in sort of the yeah. the near term of of what what's likely to come? So I think the second half of this year is going to be much more volatile and not as smooth as the first half of the year. Um, you know, and, and part of the reason I say that is you know we, we're 14, 15 months into this rate hiking cycle now, which is the fastest rate hiking cycle in history for the United States. And a lot of times when you have a rate hiking cycle, the, the effects of the rate hikes don't show up for 9, 12, 15, 18 months. And so we're kind of right in the heart of that period now, whereas things start to get refinanced. Um, you know, think about it. Rates in the U.S. were, were zero 18 months ago, and now they're five and a half percent. That's like a 7,000 uh, percent increase. It's crazy. And so if you if you if you had, I don't know, you had taken on some financing, let's say three years ago rates were zero and your, your loan was at 2% or whatever it was. And now you, you have to refinance three years later and rates are three times as high as they were, or your rates now three times as high as it was two years ago, your payments now two or three times as high as it was two years ago, three years ago. That's a huge amount that now has to go towards debt servicing that was previously going towards, you know, whatever it was. And so I think, I think we're going to get into that period where, where that's going to be a problem. The other thing that's happened right now is that, uh, and this is something that Keith and I talk about all the time, is that we don't know that there's going to be a crisis. Maybe the powers that be can kind of keep us going down the road. All we know is that the table is set in a way that if there is a crisis, really bad things are going to happen because things are so kind of mispriced and out of bounds. As an example, you know, the, the, everybody knows the dollar had a huge run up last year. It's had a huge pullback over the last nine months. And now everybody's bearish to the dollar again. You know, asset managers have never been more short than they are now. Um, the speculative long position in the euro uh, has never been as big, or I think one only one time in history it's been bigger than it is now. And so, you know, if we get into some kind of even, it doesn't even have to be a crisis, but just even a downward trending market, and the dollar starts to get some strength off of um, you know that that contraction of credit or slowdown in markets. You know, you could get a short squeeze in the dollar again, and we could end up right back where we were, 
you know, last September in, in very short order. Now, whether that happens or not, I, you know, I, I don't know. But all I know is if it does happen, people aren't prepared for it. And, and one of the ways that I think this could really manifest is I, I think there's a lot of people out there because the United States is the biggest market in the world, they focus almost exclusively on the United States. And as a result, they focus on all the problems the United States has. And, and I, I don't discount that. I think it's important to kind of pay attention to those problems. But I, I think as a result, they also tend to overlook the problems that are elsewhere. And, and the problem that the Bank of Japan is dealing with right now is I think incredibly important for global markets for two reasons. And that is regardless, so, so there, the Bank of Japan uh, I'll give a little context. To, hopefully it won't take too long, but I'll set the stage a little bit. So the Bank of Japan for, let's call it 20 or 30 years, has been running these extraordinary monetary policies. Everything the Fed has done, the Bank of Japan has done it years ago and is continuing to do it. Um, and, and as a result, they've kept rates at you know next to zero for years and years and years and years. And as a result, as they issued zero or negative yielding JGBs, Japanese government bonds, all the banks, the insurance companies, the pension funds, you know, ha have bought this debt at either zero or negative yielding levels. Also, because rates were basically at zero, you if you borrowed yen, there was really no borrowing cost, right? So you borrow yen and then you go buy something else somewhere that, you know, you go buy emerging market stocks, you go buy you know, developed market uh, fixed income that's even if it's yielding one or 2%, that's one or 2% more than your borrowing costs that are zero. And so, you know, you could short the yen, you could take that cash and then go buy, you know, assets all over the world. And that's what, you know, market participants did in spades. So there's this huge yen carry trade out there. Okay. The reason that's important is now we're at a place where after all of these years, but the, in Japan, they're actually finally starting to get a little bit of inflationary pressure. And so instead of rates being at zero, rates have started to push up a little bit. The reason that's a problem is because all of these bonds that were bought at either zero or negative rates will lose value as those rates start to go now go higher. And so that has the potential to, to cause a banking system crisis or in, in Japan or anybody that's holding JGBs. As a result, the Bank of Japan has instituted what they called yield curve control, which means they will buy however many bonds they have to buy in order to keep those rates low, okay? The problem with doing that is it has absolutely killed the yen. The yen was down like 20 or 30% last year. It's, uh, and that's a huge move for one of the biggest currencies in the world. So their currency is just getting crushed, which leads to even more inflation, which then tries to push bond prices even higher. Long story short is you cannot say, you can do it for a very short period of time, but over a long period of time, you cannot save both the bond market and the currency market because the, the policies that would, you would put in place to save the bond market will kill the currency and the policies that you would put in place to save the currency would kill the bonds. So the Bank of Japan is in really kind of between a rock and a hard place. But because of these inflationary pressures, they have said they may let yields rise a little bit, okay? So here's the thing. If they don't let yields rise a little bit and the currency continues to weaken, then that, that puts an incredible amount of pressure on China because China's one of their biggest regional competitors. And if Jap Japan's currency is getting weaker, 
That means China's goods are getting more expensive versus Japan's and Japan can outcompete them, okay? If that happens too much, then it puts deflationary pressure on China, which, which they're already having trouble dealing with their, their, the deflationary forces in their market. And that could cause China to have to devalue their currency, which then would send a huge deflationary wave to the rest of the world. And it would really hit places like Canada, who have a, I would argue, an overinflated stock market, right? Uh, so you would have this deflationary wave come towards Canada, or a defla or sorry, a inflate a real estate market. Uh, Canada has a, a inflated real estate market. So that would have two problems. It would send a deflationary wave to the rest of the world, which I think would impact Canadian real estate. But then not only that, the Chinese buyers who have been buying a lot of Canadian real estate, their currency is now devalued. And at, at the same time that China would devalue the currency, they would probably throw up all kinds of capital controls. So the flow of capital from China to buy more real estate would probably dry up. So this is, this is a way that everything's all connected, right? And so that that's the way that if if the if the currency continues to fall in Japan, how it could affect Canada. But the opposite is also true. If they decide to save the currency in Japan and they let the yen appreciate, now that carry trade, remember I said all that capital has been deployed all around the world because there's no borrowing costs. All of that uh, capital that's been placed abroad now comes rushing back to Japan. That's good for Japan. It's not so good for all those places that that money was at because now that liquidity is leaving those other markets. And maybe some of that money's in Canada or the United States or Brazil or you know emerging markets or wherever it is. So to me, the reason that Japan kind of sits at the middle, at the very center of, you know, in my mind, kind of global macro right now is because regardless of which way they go, un unless they can walk that tightrope perfectly, regardless of which way they go, it has the potential to kind of create you know, the, the, this kind of this uh, global event that we that we've that we've talked about. So we have a I hope that a wasn't too of, confusing. Uh, well, brilliant. No, story. I don't think it was confusing, but I think uh, we have a lot of people who are listening to the podcast who are directly involved in the uh, the real estate market, in, including the king of Kitsilano up there. But you may have just scared the crap out of all the realtors and mortgage brokers in, in Canada. So, uh, yeah, if I were you, I wouldn't go to Vancouver again for the, for the next Macro Voices event. Well, listen, I, I, I'll say this. Vancouver is one of my favorite cities in the world. Uh, I've been there many times. I love it. I can't wait to go back. Um, and the truth is, I've thought this for several years now, as have many others, and the market just keeps going up. So, the only, again, the I don't only know thing this, I'd push I don't know back this is going to happen tomorrow. The only thing I'd push back on the Chinese stuff is it seems like the only people that are ever allowed to get capital out of that country are members of the CCP. Well, that's fair. That's fair. And it's, you know, capital controls for everybody else, unless you're connected to the government. And that's where you get a lot of these sort of illicit flows into places like Vancouver. Sure. But yeah. anyways, I, I, think think guys. I think, I think oh, that's sorry. probably why the, the, it has held up so well. Right. And not only that, but the net immigration going into China or into Canada has obviously helped. And so, you know, again, nothing is certain, you know, I, I've painted the scenario where kind of a really bad thing will happen. And I don't, again, I'm not, I don't think anybody should run out there and place their whole portfolio on this idea. I just think that they should be aware of it and understand that if something like that were to happen, it's not just going to be a minor little thing. It has the potential to be a, a very, very big thing. Rich, you have one more question for Brent before yeah, I finish well, up? 
Yes, just a really quick one. So you've outlined sort of what might happen to developed markets that are highly indebted, whether it's Switzerland or, you know, you know, Canada, Japan, you know, the, I call them the 300% club. Yeah. Um, countries with 300% of debt to GDP, this includes non-financial corporations, households, and government. And then there's obviously a bunch in the 200% club. Canada's at 365, by the way. Yeah, which, but there's a 200% club, which is the US and the UK and Italy and whatever it is. But there are certain countries that sort of, I mean, whether, you know, on purpose or maybe not, that just do not have any debt to GDP, basically. And so I would think of something like Mexico. Um, now, I understand maybe in the initial stages, you know, people would like pour out of the Mexican peso um, and into the US dollar. But do you see it? I mean, it, it is different this time. Whereas, you know, we've had sovereign debt crises. You know, we had the tequila crisis um, in the 90s. And then in the late 90s, we had the Asian sovereign debt crisis. And but there are a bunch of emerging markets that basically really just have not levered up at all in the same way. Um, how do you feel that that would play out in the scenario that you've sort of described? I mean, again, maybe not the initial stages, because I agree with you, the dollar would bounce, but yeah. do, you, do you treat them differently? Um, I don't necessarily treat them differently. And, and I agree with what you're saying. Uh, I think in the, uh, to your point, in the initial stages, I think capital would flee those locations. And I think they go to the US dollar. Um, and so in some ways, I think that they would get hurt. And, and as a result, I don't want to have any exposure to them right now. But after the initial stages of it, then, and you know, after liquidity is left, then you're going to want to look around and say, who has the best balance sheets, right? And to your point, they have some of the best balance sheets. So I think if you have the opportunity to buy them at a big discount, then that's probably a good thing to do. And I think ultimately after this whole developed market crisis plays out, um, if you're able to buy these emerging markets or some of these frontier markets at very good prices, that that's probably the next big trade after this one. That's a great place Perfect. to uh, wrap it up. Keith, do you have any final parting words here? I want to be respectful of Brent's time, obviously. Yeah, sure thing. I just want to, I just want to share, I didn't introduce this in the beginning when, when, when Brent joined us, but uh, uh, Brent's firm is Santiago Capital. Brent manages money for uh, family offices and high net worth private clients down in the U.S. So if anyone is listening, they're in that market, uh, you know, Brent is more than happy to, to chat with you. And I know I alluded to it a little bit, but Brent and I, we do manage money for some of the same clients around the world. And we, we also have a special purpose vehicle that is set up to benefit if one of these events would happen, sort of moving with the U.S. dollar. So that's sort of... The connection that Brent and I have together. I know people have asked that before. Does that make sense with you, Brent? Is that a good way to describe it? Yeah, and it, and it doesn't. And, and I'll tell everybody part part of the reason that Keith and I, I I have begun working together over the last four years, and and we continue to do more and more stuff together. Uh, not only again, you know, I alluded to that first time I I read his report, but then you know we started talking, and our philosophy is very much the same, and we kind of think about markets the same. But the other thing, quite honestly, is that Keith has a fantastic track record. I know, I know, he probably never talks about it, um, but you know, a lot of times you'll talk to smart people, and you know, you, you you get a good feel for them. But then if you look at their returns, they're fine, but they're nothing special. Uh, but you know, when I started talking to Keith and asking him how he managed money, and you know, we kind of were on the same page. But then he showed me his track record, and he's never lost money in twelve years. 
you know, and think about well, think about all that's happened over since the global financial crisis and all the craziness. And through all of that, you know, he's been able to to manage his strategy without a drawdown. So, I mean, that's that's pretty impressive. And I know I know he doesn't talk about it, so I'll talk about it for him. Anyway, it's kind of like the stepbrothers movie. You know, you you have that love and dislike relationship sometimes. I'll I'll, uh, I'll, I'll yell I'll yell at you later. Not not on this call. Thank you very much. Uh, okay, th th Brent, thank you for your time. That was a that was a great conversation. And uh, so we'll chat again soon. I'm sure we'd love to have you back. One thing people don't realize, we're trying to encourage Brent to meet us in Vancouver for the event, but it, it just didn't work out with his schedule. He's traveling quite a bit. So maybe at some other uh, Looney Hour event in the future, you might see uh, Brent hanging out with everyone. Okay, thank you for your time, Brent. Okay. See you guys. <laughs> That was a great, uh, great interview with Brent there. Hopefully everybody enjoyed it. Um, you know, we'll definitely have him back on the show again, but just to uh, kind of switch gears here on the Canadian front, uh, you know, what's happening more domestically. Uh, of course, we've got, you know, residential real estate sales, uh, some of the data coming out of Vancouver and Toronto housing markets, uh, you know, in Vancouver, kind of a mixed bag. You know, if you look at the headlines, sales are up. Uh, new listings were up and uh, you know, ultimately though, when you unpack it further, so sales are up 28% listings up 17. Um, but you know, inventory, inventory running at its lowest level. So the, basically what it is, is the number of homes for sale available on the MLS system as of the end of July, we're at the lowest levels for any month of July dating back 20 years. Um, and so this is the ongoing sort of story here. It's just, there's just not a lot to buy. And so despite mortgage rates being at 6%, this is the only reason, in my opinion, why you haven't seen house prices declining is because it's, it's hard for prices to climb. There's nothing to buy. And so we're still seeing multiple offers happening, especially for entry-level product, houses, condos. Uh, I would say that prices, in my opinion, have stopped going up, um, but it's still a really tight market. And so it's certainly making the Bank of Canada's job harder, right? You know, pushing rates up as much as they have and not seeing any real house price declines um, because, like I said, a, a lack of inventory. I know we've chatted about in the show, I would argue that the Bank of Canada, or through higher interest rates, it's actually ended up trapping people into their houses um, because it's hard to qualify and hard to upsize when you got a stress test at 8%. So people are just kind of staying put. They're not listing and they're not buying. And so it's a pretty, pretty dull market. That appears this is the be, pause that you talked about in Vancouver, right? Well, yeah, I mean, the unpause, which is like, listen, I think there's more downside potentially coming, but the only issue is that you need inventory for that to happen. And so I still believe it's a race to, it's a race basically between, okay, our rate's going to drop. I, I personally think they will at some point, maybe it's eight months from now, maybe it's 13 months from now. Um, it's a race between inventory and interest rates but like it's tough because yeah you know the one of the rates that rates are going to come down i think is through economic hard times right it's it is going to be through more job layoffs so you know it's not a great setup for housing i think everybody's aware of that but like i said the only thing that's underpinning the market right now is there's no inventory and so long as there oh sorry sorry well so long as there remains like you know 10 15 20 year lows in inventory like it's just it is a simple supply demand function and it's hard to ramp that up you just can't hit a dial and it's not like uh what's that game rich the sim city you know you build things i love that game 
Yeah, well, you know, it's yeah. like interesting. Yeah. Like, you know, we've always talked about like markets being like interconnected and like, <clears throat> so like, like just go around and look at how, ha- you know, same things happening in Australia, same things happening in the U S like they just, these housing markets, despite rates going up are remaining resilient only because like, there's just, there's no inventory. And so everybody seems to be having the sort of same challenges in their, in their housing markets. But that's true for some segments, but would you, I mean, would you say that, how would you feel if someone said to you, like, there's actually lots of inventory in sort of the apartment area, right? So, you know, if you look at housing starts and housing completions in Canada, single family homes have been flat forever, but the apartments have sort of gone through the roof. And, and I'm starting to see some articles kick around um, about how condo, there's some issues with condo sales and those pre-sales that you always talk about Yeah, and in Toronto. And, and I mean, I know I'm, this is not my lane, but I was just asking about it. No, it's, a, yeah, for- it's a good question. I, I think units under construction for the apartment side is definitely elevated, but I think it's also like, and you strip it out, like the composition of housing is changing, right? We're not building single family houses anymore. We're building you know, multi-units. And so if you actually look at like com- how many completions are we averaging a year and, and the number of completions, I think for 2022 was like the lowest in like five or 10 years. Okay. So it's like, yeah, you got a lot of units under construction, but I, I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty skeptical that it's a market that I do think there's going to be losses in the investor space. People that overpaid on pre-sales. I think it's a very speculative market there. Um, People have been overpaying for a while now. And I do think that you're going to see investors, they're going to get hit for sure. I I strongly believe that. But surely, or surely, 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 there she is. Surely there must be some changes taking place in Ottawa that might alleviate the housing supply. Yeah, you teed me up, teed me up for that one, Boomer. Um, so everybody knows going viral here this week was uh, Justin Trudeau, uh, of course, fresh off his cabinet shuffle there, uh, did a presentation in Ottawa for some new social housing or something they were building, some some ridiculously small amount of housing, uh, and to which he basically said, uh, you know, housing is not, he says, I'll be blunt, you know, housing is not a federal responsibility. Um, and then he went on to say, well, you know, federal housing is not a responsibility, but doesn't mean we shouldn't be trying to do something. And so like that, someone basically, they clipped that out and it went viral. Like everybody was upset, even his supporters and just, just the wrong thing to say. Like I said, I mean, these guys just can't see. It was about, sorry, but it was about five or six years ago. He said the exact opposite. Course, in it, well, well, yeah, when they it were was one of his, when he, in 2015, it was one of his platform or Paul, it was one of his man. I mean, in the UK, they call it a manifesto here, you know, it's one of those platform promises, wasn't it, to make housing more affordable? Yeah, yeah, I mean, 2015, he, I think, he arguably one of the reasons he got elected was because, like, you know, the young guy coming in that was going to do something about the housing market, make housing more affordable, he kind of campaigned aggressively on that. Uh, same thing again in 2021 um, during the sort of, I guess, re-election campaign there. Uh, he he pushed hard on housing again. And, uh, you know, here we are, right? So but the irony, the irony, of course, is that he's right, though. <laughs> no, 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 no. Right? I'm, I mean, in part, in part, he is. I mean, letting, you know, 1.2 million people obviously doesn't help. But it we've discussed it on the show before. It's a, it's a municipal and local issue. But he got, you know, he campaigned I, okay, on something so he had, I, doesn't have an effect on. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not. Yeah. So I'm going to agree on the supply side. I think on the supply side, yes, it's obviously municipalities 
definitely have a very large role to play. But on the federal side, the demand side, you you control immigration, first of all, number one. Yeah. But number two, you uh, OSFI is a federal government regulated uh, institution. So that's your banking regulator. CMHC, federally regulated. Bank of Canada, that argues kind of more so at the federal level. Yeah, and then course- independent. Leave them alone. Leave them alone. <laughs> And of course, you've got your uh, you've got your you know, your your economic plans, right? Which is you know how you're running budgets. If you're running these massive inflationary deficits, like obviously that's I, I, you know you you look at Rich. You talk a lot about like productive investment in this country continuing to slide lower and lower and lower, and it's like. I would argue that's that's federal, and and so this this malinvestment continues to sort of end up into real estate speculation because I think there's this the entrepreneurial spirit in Canada. Yeah, it's the only way you could get rich in this country for the last twenty years is by buying. Um, con- I mean, we're joking now, but, but that that environment is that environment is created. I would argue at the federal level, right? I mean, yeah. it's so restrictive and punitive to actually start a business in Canada. Or to mine, or to build pipelines, or to whatever, what have you. Okay, fair enough. So I just think I don't know. I think it's ridiculous. Um, you know, ex- expanding on that front. You know, we talked about obviously the demand side, immigration, key lever or lever at the federal government level. So out this week was I think it was actually just yesterday. Um, there, the new housing minister in Canada, uh, he came out and said it was in a Bloomberg article that uh, there. They are going to maintain or potentially raise immigration targets uh, at their upcoming November announcement. So he says they will not be reducing immigration targets. They will be maintaining or potentially raising them uh, come November. So clearly, I don't think Ottawa is listening uh, to the people, which I think society is is upset. I think people are frustrated with what's happening, not only with housing, but with, you know, public infrastructure, you know, getting access to medical uh, care and whatnot, that the, you know, the infrastructure is struggling to support, you know, a million new people a year. But, um, but Steve, isn't the, uh, the minister who was in, not in charge of that, the minister in charge of uh, immigration in Ottawa, isn't that person now the new minister in charge of housing, affordability, and, and everything? It's the same yeah, person, well, right? It's yeah, like so a the, Jack the, Janet, Terry, Chrissy episode. The previous immigration minister was Sean Fraser. So he's he's moved from immigration to housing. So now he's the housing minister. Uh, and, and now your new immigration minister is a guy named Mark Miller. And so he's saying that uh, they're going to be looking to actually raise potentially raise immigration targets come their announcement which is expected in november i mean that, that i mean that i know we're not talking about the boc today but that to me just means this higher for longer um is just back on the table i think all any of the cuts that i mean they're all the cuts got priced out we know but i was reading the minutes again um from the the boc's last meeting and and there's a whole paragraph basically on that excess demand and it all comes from basically from um immigration and it'll just be really interesting to to see the tension and sort of who what part of the economy sort of wins out the like excess demand that that's above you know your your output um your output your potential output 
versus the slowing from higher debt servicing and you know weaker wages um it'll be it'll be really interesting well i think um so uh td economics wrote a piece on that um just gonna pull it up but they wrote basically they, 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 in their opinion they wrote a piece that said um they, they have the the neutral rate of interest is it would effectively be 50 basis points higher than it otherwise should be um, due to the levels of immigration. So they're, they're kind of knocking on that. And then they also wrote a piece that's saying um, TD estimate estimates that Canada could fall short of supplying demographically driven demand requirements by about 215,000 units over the next two years as strong population growth collides with the down cycle in housing construction. Uh, and if Canada repeats last year's cycle of record inflows, then the supply demand gap for housing swells to over 500,000 units through 2025. Um, is there a wrinkle so that we're kinda, not? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, sorry. this kind of comes on the back because, like, you know, Sean Fraser just took over the housing file. And so he was out saying, yeah, listen, like, we're going to ramp up like housing starts, like, you know, and maybe he thinks he's going to have the same success he did on the immigration side. But I, I would argue, Keith, I think that he's he's how is he going to incentivize the private sector to build to build housing right now to ramp up housing starts when your cost of capital which is when your largest inputs in, in new construction is is up 500 basis points i mean there's lots of ways they can do it i mean the, the challenge of course that other housing starts are they're not by mega corporations you know they're you know small to medium size i don't think there's any pub i think it's like one or two maybe publicly traded developers yeah, i mean Canada. most they're of them all, they're just all private money guys making you know building a house and, and stuff uh but you know if if we're in the situation and this is you know it, it is what it is uh you have to subsidize the builders or protect them against losses which is insane i mean it's the yeah wrong. try imagine putting that through the system i mean they couldn't even properly manage you know some kind of well, you can underwrite their financing you can underwrite their financing I mean, CMA, so CMA, she does that. Yeah, but, the even, the fin- program, yeah, but, but even the financing, Rich, it has to be like, if I don't want to build a house, because I'm concerned, I want to take a loss on it. Yeah. You know, and I know you can't build it because you would show up with a chainsaw to knock it down. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, if, but if, you know, we're going to build a house and three of us together and we say, hey, like we, we might make 10% or we could lose 40%. You know, so the way the government would encourage us, they would say, okay, guys, we will cover the first 30% of losses. And then we would say, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll take that opportunity. Yeah. But again, I, I think something. there's no way that's going to happen. Yeah, you're, you're yeah. right, Steve. It's I mean, I guess what they could do, and I think arguably what they should be doing is they should be, you know, they, they already, you know, the federal government obviously owns a lot of land to begin with um, that, you know, they could be actively going out there and building government-owned buildings um sort of i don't know if you want to call it social housing but um you know purpose-built rental buildings uh that are owned by the government or owned by cmhc um i have a question about this so but you know i think last year at this time we talked about so the growth versus value trade and it was um, because we know that a lot of people who come to Canada go to basically two places, Vancouver and Toronto, and that's obviously putting a lot of pressure on those two jurisdictions. Have you seen evidence of people sort of making the value trade? So saying, you know, saw this, I'm going to go to a second tier or third or even fourth tier where the vacancy rates, vacancy rates 
for rentals are just naturally much higher and, 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 and see, are we seeing any of that flow? I think you, I think you're just seeing the flow into places like Calgary, Saskatoon, you know, people were like, Hey, listen, cost of living's more affordable. Maybe this isn't my first choice of places to live. Um, but like, listen, I, I also prioritize, you know, the ability to, to raise a family and not be, you know, burdened by a massive mortgage, um, or rents that are taking 50% of my income. And so they're, I think we are seeing in migration patterns, people moving to these more affordable cities. But it's still, t- I mean, from an anecdotal perspective, like here in Halifax, like it's the same supply story. There's not a lot of supply. If you want to buy, then then you're just bidding up, you know, the, the few available units that are out there. The rental market, it's, you know, is, is definitely a seller's market as well. So I understand like a lot of people have traded down. They sold Toronto, moved to Halifax and, you know, work remotely and stuff like that. But I, I just think it's a national challenge. There are going to be pockets where they have the space and opportunity to build. But if you don't have the builders to do it, I mean, how are they going to bring it online? Yeah. I don't know. We're I not offering it's... any solution here to anyone listening, of course, but it's, <laughs> it's a conversation everyone is having and, I mean, maybe maybe the best case scenario is, and again, I like to work in extremes, but let's just say in 24, no immigration, zero. We need three years to catch up on everything. So housing, education, healthcare, infrastructure, you, you go down that list. Because if they don't do it, it is, it is going to create this extreme moment when, as Brent mentioned earlier, uh, maybe in... You know, maybe the financial shock comes from outside of Canada, which does trigger a pretty deep recession. And all of a sudden, then, you know, it, it becomes really difficult to try to find someone who wants to build because they're going to say, no way, I'm going to lose money on, on this. Yeah, That's I think it just comes one, right? down to like, I think we're seeing that now, obviously, you know, Reggie and I have talked about it more offline, but just the uh, the number of news articles coming out of mainstream media, CBC, CTV, Global News. Globe and Mail, et cetera, writing articles, you know, questioning the number of immigrants or immigration that we have coming uh, into Canada. Those articles would have not been written 12 to 18 months ago. In fact, I would argue that if you brought that idea up, you'd be considered, you know, xenophobic. Um, I was. (laughs) So my my dad's from Africa. My mother's from Portugal. I'm like the immigrant story. And I made that comment on Twitter and I got caved in. Yeah, but you're also adorable looking. Look at you. Come on. I think that's the frustrating part. Last last piece on this immigration thing. I just like all we're saying is to lower it slightly like nobody nobody who we talk to about this subject is saying it should be zero you know it should just be like hey let's you know instead of going from sixth gear you know you, you put into third gear <laughs> it's just anyways let's maybe- yeah no i hear you so i think uh you know we've only got about you know five minutes left here let's just do a, a around around the horn here uh quick uh a quick roundup but uh rich you've got few data points you're looking at obviously with the bank bank of england uh raised what another 25 basis points yeah i just want to go quickly over what they said and why it sort of relates to canada i think so the bank of england raised interest rates to a 15-year high 
And they said that the fight for inflation um, may require yet another, um, or much more, excuse me, require tightening, tighter borrowing conditions for an extended period of time. Always keeping Canada in mind when you're sort of thinking about that, because I think Canada is sort of dealing with similar, not the same, but similar issues. Um, and it said sufficiently restrictive for sufficiently long. So leave it to the Brits to make it complicated and, and fancy sounding, basically higher for longer. We talked about this. Um, part of the reason that that's happening is the housing piece related to what you brought up a couple of weeks ago, Steve, which is the mortgage interest payments. And something that I brought up many times is the services uh, component of their inflation. So yes, goods are falling driven by energy. We'll talk about that next week because I think we're going to see a rebound there. But it's the services component. The housing component is just continuing to put upward pressure on um, the BOE, Keith. And um, and yeah, so that's that's, that's my simple couple US for... data data points as well. We had the what the uh, ISM prices paid. Yeah, the ISM, the ISM, I think it rose slightly, but it's still below the 50. Um, I'll note that Brent Johnson used two great pickup lines. <laughs> I didn't want to interrupt him. <laughs> I'll let the viewers uh, sort of uh, figure out which ones they were. But <laughs> and um, yeah, I'm just looking at it quickly here. I mean, you're just seeing it, it's it's you know basically of the ten of the ten um, components. You know, new orders, production, um, s deliveries. That's probably a good thing as backlogs and supply constraints. Um, um, sort of shorten up. One thing that I thought was actually interesting was the employment. So um, was is contracting, um, and it's contracting faster. So you know the other some of the other components started to, were, are still contracting, but they started to take the edge off. The employment piece started to contract at a faster rate. And remember what we what the Fed's been waiting for for a long time, which is the labor market to slow down before. So that's something to keep an eye on going forward. I'm interested into next week's services ISM, Keith. I don't know if you have anything to add. Yeah, uh, two things. First of all, uh, today's Thursday. We record on Thursdays. But Friday, we get the, uh, the U.S. non-farm payroll oh, yeah. number. So the jobs number for the Americans come out. Uh, tomorrow, which is your today, or it was your morning. Oh, yeah, as you're listening right? to this, oh, you already so have confused. that number. <laughs> yeah, um, there we go. Uh, but that is that's going to be a, a pretty big uh, market mover. Uh, but but What's this the expectation week... on that one, Keith? Uh, just uh, for our listeners here, so uh, like I said, they're going to be listening to this. They'll probably already have the number, but. I well, my Bloomberg shut down from inactivity, so uh, <laughs> you I don't pay have the it. bills or what? No, from from talking to you guys for an hour. I, I forgot to toggle my, my screen. <laughs> you know what I mean, if you know what I mean. Uh, but just something real quickly. So, you know, I think Brent talked on that a little bit, but this week, the Bank of Japan, they had to intervene in the bond market twice, like two days in a row. So the 10-year went from 0.5% up to 0.6%. And the Japan, the Bank of Japan lost it. They spent about three to five billion USD equivalent to keep the yield where it was. Right. The next day, it happened again. It went up another ten basis points. So again, just to express how sensitive that market is, and that was the market event that's caused the big risk off day over the last two days, especially yesterday. So, so again, yesterday it was, it was a major risk off event. Equities were down. You know, one to two, three percent on which market the US dollar was just on fire yesterday. 
especially against the yen. But this is the environment now we're, we're into. Because anyway, it's been a pretty good year so far for risk on assets, but it, it changed on the dime. And it wasn't Canada, it was, it was the Japanese that triggered it. So that, that's what I thought was really uh, interesting and, you know, exciting. Because this, if, you're, if you manage money, you're not excited these days, and you're in the wrong world. Because we live in a period of extremes, and it's it's coming coming it's at us pretty good. It's yeah, um, it's, it's, Keith, it's fun. On your, fun. Uh, on your non-farm payroll, so economists pulled by Reuters uh, expect, expect the U.S. to add 184,000 jobs in non-farm payrolls in July, uh, which would be the lowest since the pandemic recovery started. Uh, so we'll see what that number comes in at. But So just uh, a little wrinkle there, which, sorry to interrupt you, Steve, but what's interesting about that is that the ADP number which is the accounting uh, uh, software company whatever the, the, they came up with a huge number of like 360 something if i can't forget correct me if yeah. i'm wrong so yeah they were it was huge which keep in mind i guess all i mean all these numbers are always subject to revision but yeah. um yeah just to round it out i think it was a you know a great conversation this week i think brent made a really you know th- th- the point i really kind of take away from that whole conversation was like if you're a Canadian and you know that the world's going to hell in a handbasket, like it's like, well, what do you want to have like the vast majority of your wealth denominated in? Like, what currency do you want to have the vast majority of your wealth denominated in? And it's like, I can tell you, like, my first choice would not be Canadian dollars. That's yeah, all. I, think, I mean, the answer is so. I mean, in in general, really, really easily. If if the world is not doing well, you want dollars. If it's going to do very well. You do not want dollars. You know, you want a whole Canadian dollar pound, emerging markets especially. We just happen to be in a market right now where it could, you know, tilt more towards the dollar world. Anyway, there she was, Steve. There she was, gone. Um, As always, guys, appreciate your support. And we'll see you next week.